have to say they hardly hardly spent a lot of time thinking of a catchy name for her department, did they? Innovation, research, culture, education, and youth. Oh, imagine how big our business cards must be. Welcome to the EuropeLex podcast. I'm Ewan Healy and with me is Gabriel Hedengren. Gabriel, how are you doing? Hi Ewan, yeah, yeah, I'm all good. All good. Um, looking out at the depressing rain through my London window, missing the heat wave a few weeks ago. <laughs> may not, we may not have good weather, but at least we've got some elections to talk about. Um, in this episode, we've got correspondents talking about Poland uh, and the Balkans with uh, Michal Kanarski talking to us about Poland and uh, Luka Jukic talking to us about Croatia, both of whom have been on the podcast before. So friendly voices, friendly voices. Yeah, um, I mean, it really is great for for us and I'm sure most of our listeners. It's just getting so busy again, the, the electoral schedule. And as if it's not enough covering Poland, Serbia and Croatia, we're also going to speak, well, I actually spoke with Philippe Marlière, and he's a professor of French and European politics at uh University College London about the French municipal elections that took place this past Sunday and sort of what it means for French politics going forward. So stay tuned for that later in the episode. But first, we should just run through our news items. There's even more than we've just covered to, to share with you all. Um, so why don't you kick it off, Ewan? Yeah, so let's, uh, let's go to Dublin first, where this week after almost four months of uh, question marks over the future of Irish government. Uh, four months without uh, a clear winner of the general election that took place in February, we have got a government in Ireland. It's the first time a grand coalition uh, has been established in Ireland between the centre-right Fine Gael and the Liberal Fianna Foyle party, along with this time the Green Party. The government agreement sees their politicians from uh, the two larger parties taking six cabinet positions each, with the Greens taking a further three cabinet positions. Furthermore, a rotation for the position of head of government, which is Taoiseach in Ireland, has been agreed, which is Fianna Foyle's leader, Micheál Martin, take the position in from now until December 2022, before it returns to Fine Gael leader, Leah Varadkar, who has been the Taoiseach since 2017 until this week, who will also be serving as the, the deputy head of government until then. Definitely a unique arrangement. Um... Moving on to Iceland, um, they also had an election recently um, that didn't get the international attention um, it deserved. <laughs> but that was probably because its incumbent president uh, was re-elected by a crazy 92% of voters. Historian Gudni Johannesson defeated right-wing independent challenger Gudmundur Franklin Jonsson by around 140,000 votes. So this is the highest result for any candidate in a contested presidential election um, since 1988. Um, and Iceland um, does have a tradition of re-electing its incumbents. Uh, it's actually um, happened every election in, in its 76-year history. So it's never seen a president run and not get re-elected. Um, it's also happened quite a few times that there simply um, isn't um, anyone running against them. So quite typical for Iceland, but still very unique with a 92% election win. We've got to feel sorry for whenever it comes around that an incumbent loses, breaking that 76-year streak. That's got to be embarrassing for them. Yeah, that means you've done poorly. 
let's uh, go east to Belarus, where in the last two weeks, tensions have been rising between opposition supporters and government forces in so-called last dictatorship of Europe. Uh, President Lukashenko's actions uh, and arrests of uh, anti-government influences and potential presidential challenges are what Amnesty International, the human rights organization, called a, quote, full-scale attack on human rights. Protesters were seen lining the streets of Minsk and elsewhere in Belarus, forming a human chain as a copy of the Estonian, Latvian and Lithuanian Baltic Way protests in 1989 against Soviet rule. In this environment, the elections are still expected to take place on August the 9th, with six candidates seemingly managing to surpass the threshold of the 100,000 signatures. The six candidates are incumbent President Alexandra Lukashenko, the, the detained ex-banker Viktor Babereka, the leader of the opposition Social Democratic Hromada, Sierach uh, Chirechen, one of the two opposition MPs from the previous convocation of parliament, which is Hanna Kanapaksaya, the co-chair of the Belarusian Tell the Truth campaign, Andrei Dimitreou, and the wife of a popular detained opposition blogger, Svetlana Chichanuskaya. However, the Electoral Commission has declared large proportions of the signatures of opposition candidates invalid, with more than half of the total number collected in the cases of Viktor Babayaka and uh, Valery Chepkal. Uh, actually, Chepkal as a result, has failed to meet the signature threshold with only 75,000 of his 160,000 signatures being formally recognized by the Electoral Commission. He will, of course, repeal the decision of the Electoral Commission, and we will keep covering all electoral news in this authoritarian regime. Definitely. And moving on to Serbia now, uh, according to some, a hybrid regime, slowly stepping back into um, into uh, democracy, I guess. Um, so on 21st of June, they held parliamentary elections, uh, which saw the incumbent centre-right SNS coalition surge to a landslide victory. Only two other parties crossed the national threshold of 3%, uh, which was actually lowered um, ahead of the elections. Um, and those were centre-left SPS that came in second, uh, with just 32 seats, and right-wing Serbian Patriotic Alliance, um, which took part for the first time in a Serbian election and won 11 seats. Uh, the reason for these results was boycott by all major opposition parties, uh, which obviously then led to a search for the incumbents. Uh, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe uh, has heavily criticized the lack of free media throughout the elections, and uh, think tank Freedom House, um, as I referred to um, just a minute ago, uh, describes Serbia as just a partly free country in a hybrid regime. Um, also, neighboring country Croatia is getting ready to go to the polls on July 5th, uh, and we'll get all the information about that from our very own Luka Ivan Jukic. Staying in the Balkans, talks between Kosovo and Serbia, which were planned to take place last week in Washington, D.C., in the United States, and facilitated by the United States government, have been cancelled after the Kosovan president, Hashim Prachi, was indicted for war crimes. The talks were aimed at settling border disputes between the two countries and hoping to conclude with Serbia recognizing the fledgling state for the first time. But the specialist prosecutor on Kosovo at The Hague announced on the 24th of June that they were gonna be filing 10 counts against Thatchi and others for crimes against humanity, which date back to the Kosovo war in the late 1990s. Thatchi, in a public address, denied all the accusations 
and questioned their timing while declaring that he would resign if the indictment was confirmed. At the same time, France and Germany have also indicated that their willingness to host a summit which could replace the one that had to be cancelled, which would take place between Kosovo and Serbia in Paris. Fingers crossed that all goes well. Um, and other news from our continent um, include the French municipal elections. And as I said, I had a fascinating discussion with Philippe Malière, who's a professor of French and European politics. Um, that's coming up. Uh, and of course, um, you, if you follow us, you can't have missed the fact that it was the first round of um, Poland's presidential elections um, this past weekend, uh, about which we welcome back our correspondent, uh, Michel Konarski. Our excellent Polish correspondent has been covering the presidential elections and is here to give us an update. Michal, how are you doing? Hi, hi, I'm doing well. Great. So some polls just a few months ago had Duda winning the first round outright. Instead, in the actual election, he got 43%. What went wrong for President Duda? Uh, frankly, I don't think that anything go, go wrong with Duda because uh, many polls last month showed him um, in he showed that his result would be between 38 to 41 or something like that. In the election, he received 43,5%. So that's a lot. That's the biggest score for any uh, candidate backed by uh, by peace. So. I think it's a pretty big success for him. Now, uh, when we look forward, obviously, to the um, the second round, which is going to be between uh, Duda and, and Truskovsky, Duda said some pretty inflammatory things about the LGBT community and others in his campaign. Will that mean that supporters of, of the independent candidate uh, Holovnia, um, centre-left Bidron and other candidates will just move straight to Truskovsky? It's very possible because Biedron officially endorsed Trzaskowski a couple of days ago, just after the first round. And Hołownia has planned a meeting with Trzaskowski about his plans for a second round. So, yeah, I think that the voters of Hołownia and Biedroń will back Trzaskowski. But the problem is with the Confederacja Party, Confederation Party voters, because Confederation is a far-right party, and but they are also very pro-free market. So it's very difficult to say who will get the Confederacia voters. So right now, obviously, the polls are, are neck and neck, with the poll uh, on polling day showing Trzaskowski and Duda on literally 50-50. Who do you think will prevail on election day? Oh, that's another tough question because, well, between Duda and Trzaskowski, there are 13% points, which means that there are about two and a half or even three million voters between them. So if Trzaskowski will get Hołownias and Biedroń votes, it would be around three million. But Duda could also get another vote from Bosak or other minor candidates, or even Kosiniak-Kamysh. So, yeah, for now it's 50-50, but I think Duda 
will probably win the second round because it's very hard for Sarkovsky to get more votes. Well, there you have it. We will be watching this election closely and Mikhail will be covering it on all of our platforms very closely, carefully, and with great quality, I would hasten to add. Thank you very much, uh, Mikhail, for coming on. Uh, it's been really uh, interesting to chat to you over the last few weeks. And again, now that we've got some hard election results. Thank you, thank you, bye-bye. Are you listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that allows for reviews? then please drop us a review and why not make it five stars as well? It will only take you a minute and it will mean the world for all of us at Europelex. Also, if you do like our podcast and you want to help us grow, be sure to also subscribe and of course, tell everyone you know about us. If you have an idea for a segment, we'd love for you to share it with us. Any thoughts on topics we should be covering or you know any feedback, please shoot us an email at podcast at europelex.eu. talk about another election, a rather different uh, elections going on in other European countries at the moment, is Europelex colleague Luka Jukic. Hello Luka, how are you doing? Hi Ewan, I'm doing great, glad to be here. So this election is a little different because instead of being a delayed election like others going on at the moment in France this week for example, this is actually an, an early election compared to when it would normally have been in September. So why is it coming earlier than, than expected Luka? Right. So I guess like in many places and any place having an election right now, the big worry is, of course, still coronavirus. And so I guess the thinking behind bringing it earlier to the summer was that, you know, the situation with the pandemic would be better than in the fall when there might be a second spike and all that. But there was a bit of a twist because it seems they kind of loosened things up a bit too early and they basically allowed a tennis tournament to go ahead in the Croatian city of Zadar, where very prominently Novak Djokovic, the number one tennis player in the world, got coronavirus, as did, I think, a lot of the other participants. And now it's become a bit of an issue in Croatia because the prime minister also attended this tournament and was in contact with many known cases, but refused to go into self-isolation. So as far as I know, this might be the first election where coronavirus plays a very prominent role in the actual outcome just from that one incident, which has basically led to a very large second spike in Croatia overall. I mean, I'm not sure if that was the only reason, but it's definitely symbolic of a kind of complacency that has led to the pandemic kind of spiraling out of control again. Although, I mean, to be fair, it might be under control, but there was a large spike with kind of equally high daily cases as in the first wave. In any case, it's become a large issue again. In a country where a few weeks ago there was zero cases per day, so it was it had kind of calmed down, and now just as we get to the election, it's kind of heating back up again. So what you're saying is it's all tennis's fault? Well, <laughs> I don't want to blame it directly on tennis, but there's definitely some tennis players who could be held at fault here. So we've been talking about, obviously, the prime minister who has perhaps... I've been in contact with people who've been later diagnosed with coronavirus. Um, Prime Minister incumbent is from the centre-right HDZ, and that party and the centre-left SDP have both dominated Croatian politics since the 1990s. Now, polls coming up for this election have both parties below a third of the vote each, which would be their lowest ever. You know, what, what's behind that? So it's pretty interesting. So yeah, this could be the first election in Croatia where, to be fair, they have been kind of on the decline for many years. I think there is generally a lot of dissatisfaction in Croatia with 
both parties, but especially for the HDZ, which has ruled much longer, basically since Croatia's inception as a modern country. But there was the first party to win in democratic elections. It was the party that ruled throughout the 90s. And it has kind of since then had this kind of stranglehold on Croatian politics that a lot of people resent, although they do maintain kind of a very large base of popularity, obviously. But they have had a kind of split in recent years between their kind of centrist factions of which the prime minister Plenković is kind of representative of and their more right-wing factions, which there's a lot of prominent politicians who are in that right-wing faction that have split off to form other minor parties, which had no electoral success. But then now in this election, the big factor is this new right-wing political or national conservative political party of Miroslav Škoro's homeland movement, which is led by this uh, kind of popular folk singer who ran for president earlier this year, coming third, just barely though, but kind of mounting this big enough challenge that it encouraged him to stay in politics and actually try to rally around these kind of disparate, more right-wing forces around him. And he seems to be succeeding. The current polls have him projected to win around close to 20 seats, which he's not going to win the election by any indication now. His party has reached enough popularity that it might challenge at least uh, the prime minister within his own party, because basically the kind of conditions set in terms of post-election coalitioning is that he uh, says he is willing to cooperate with HDZ, but not with the current prime minister in place. So there's very much this inter-right uh, war going on in Croatian politics that could kind of decide the outcome of the government, because the likely winner will be this restart coalition around the center-left SDP. But the question is whether they can actually form a majority going forward, because the other left of center party, generally left of center parties or liberal parties aren't projected to win enough seats to really form a big enough coalition. So I think that's, that's the big question. So Homeland Movement is just one of actually three significant brand new parties that have never contested a parliamentary election before. Um, I'd just like to chat about the other two now that we've ch chatted about um, DPMS. Yes. I'd like to first look at um, sort of Croatia's first green left coalition um, since its inception in Mojemo. What influence is that going to have, particularly on the restart coalition? Is it going to drag them to the left? This is kind of an interesting question because so this is this green left coalition, Mojemo, is like a, quite a new thing. I think only in the past couple of months they've really formed, but it's basically a, a coalition of several kind of smaller left wing and I think one Green Party, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, it's interesting. This, so this is the, I think it's the first time in many years, at least, that there has been this serious kind of left-wing party, because even though they're at around 5% in the polls, which might not seem incredibly impressive, but they do have a strong support base um, in the capital, Zagreb, and I think in other cities, where I think they're projected to win around 15% of the vote. So I think it is, it is a kind of interesting new dynamic forming where they actually have, there is a kind of credible left option, which I think maybe has just not been the case in previous elections. I think they might not have a huge influence in this election beyond entering parliament, but of course, through entering parliament, that does bring a lot of legitimacy and it makes them seem like maybe a more credible vote for the future. So they could kind of present a more viable alternative to just the same old center-left SDP, which also 
has had huge drops in popularity in the past and even under their current leader were considered kind of dead for many years. Besides this green left coalition, there's also this coalition between three liberal parties, which is the party with name and a last name, Pametno and Focus, which also is projected to reach 5%. Um, and I think this is also another um, example of kind of this option that hasn't necessarily existed for a while in Croatian politics, which is this kind of more liberal option that is also projected to do quite well and is, again, kind of rallying more parties around one coalition rather than just having, as there was in many previous um, polls for Croatia, you know, five or six liberal parties all around or under 1%, which I think just generally kind of doesn't present a, an optimistic picture to most voters. So I think it's, it's interesting. In recent polls, you've seen a kind of coalescing of different ideological positions around parties, which I think give Croatia kind of good pluralism, as opposed to maybe past elections where these two, you know, center-left and center-right parties have really dominated. And I think just based on Croatia's electoral system, they do end up with a vast majority of the seats even now, even if they only win 30-something percent each. What I see is really interesting about this election is the rise of a, a green movement, and a sort of consolidation of a of a serious liberal voice, um, the rise of a, a right-wing sort of populist nationalist voice and the decline of the, the traditional centre-left and centre-right parties. Is this election a sort of realignment, sort of westernization of Western Europeanization rather, of Croatian politics, that its politics are now looking a lot more like most of the other countries of, of the Western European Union? You know, that is a way to look at it. That, yeah, I mean, with, yeah, like, as you said, maybe a more right-wing populist party, a green option, it does kind of start to resemble Western Europe a bit more. But I think we need to be a bit careful before the election of pronouncing any major shifts, because I think the real question will be after the election, whether, you know, for example, the green left coalition can stay together, whether the liberals can actually um, coalesce, because I think the problem generally in Croatian politics has always been a lot of intra-political party warfare, eventually just leading into, you know, splits and divides that basically destroy every party except the two main ones. So it'll be interesting to see past the election if these kind of movements actually manage to stay together and manage to continue into the future. And maybe in that case, yes, Croatia will start to resemble some Western European countries more than before. Absolutely fascinating. And we'll all be watching very carefully uh, on Europe Alexis channels to see your coverage of the Croatian parliamentary election. Luca, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Europe Elects is run by a team of volunteers. We aren't funded by any big donors and we definitely aren't an institution of the European Union, as some of our lovely followers do seem to think. Everything we do, including this very podcast and our brilliant website, is only possible with the help of supporters and generous ones at that. Uh, we want to do even more than we already do. We've started sharing exclusive discussions, special content and more via our Patreon, which you can access and help support our product from as little as one euro a month. Don't miss out on all of the exclusive juicy stuff and support us on Patreon. So hi everyone, um, it's Gabriel here. I'm um, speaking in the afternoon of the 29th of June just a day after the second round of the municipal elections in France that were um, delayed due to COVID-19. And I'm going to discuss the main takeaway from the elections with a professor in French and European politics from 
uh, University College London. Um, Philippe Marlière, hello. Hello. How are you doing, Philippe? I'm doing well. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, so, we're obviously, it's just been, I mean, it's been less than um, 24 hours since the result came out, but I'm very happy to have you on um, to discuss the main takeaways. And I guess the headline will have to be the success of the Green Party across France, especially across the, the bigger uh, metropolitan areas. So I guess just to start off, what, what would you attribute their success to? Um, and does this say anything about their stature at a national level in French politics? Well, absolutely. The, the big news of uh, yesterday's second round of the municipal elections in France is, of course, the uh, crushing, remarkable victory of the, of the Green Party. Uh, I think it's probably also unheard of in, in Europe, a, a Green Party, you know, uh, winning uh, sort of local elections, but local elections, municipal elections, are they called in France, have a kind of, uh, have a kind of national importance, if you like, in a sense that they are quite politicized elections, they are popular elections, in a sense, normally um the uh the turnout is quite high although that wasn't the case yesterday was has reached an historic law and i think probably we need to, we'll probably need to explain that yeah. but nonetheless the big news is that yes a green party normally green parties are at best you know parties which uh, would win uh, here and there a sort of a town hall a sort of a, a one one or two um Biggish uh, town halls in France. Now they have won, and I think uh, around at least 30 uh, major cities across France. And I think the list of cities is quite impressive. They won Bordeaux, Lyon, uh, probably Marseille, you know, Lyon and Marseille being the, the, the third and second uh, biggest cities in France, uh, Poitiers, Annecy. They yeah, almost uh, yeah. won Lille, which is also a bastion of socialism. Uh, remarkable results. So I think clearly um, it, it means that they're probably the, the, the only victors of that uh, very uh, that very special election because all of the parties, traditional parties, and now as well as uh, Emmanuel Macron's party, the incumbent president, did very badly. So it's really uh, pour de force for the Greens to have sort of won all those uh, major cities and uh, they are now you could you could argue the dominant force on the left because one of the features or characteristics of the green party in france is that they are clearly leaning now uh, to the left rather than the center or the center right obviously with the with the electoral system and there being a two-round system for these municipal elections the, the whole concept of, of lists and alliance has become very important especially in the second round and obviously the Greens have benefited from the rest of the left-wing parties banding up with them. How, how new is this and has there been any sort of difficulties in getting that unification of the left flank? And is there any sense in, for example, the Socialist Party of, of hesitance of letting the Green Party take the space on the left side of French politics, or do they see it as mutually beneficial at this point? 
it's a it's a very good question because it's always a very hard fight in a French uh, political system to become the major force on either the left or right because there are several parties. You know, the, the political offer is fragmented, and yeah. France isn't the, the only country. But if you compare to the UK, in, immediately that's a striking feature. You know, in, in the UK you essentially have two major parties uh, competing for power. Whereas uh, in France, it's more complicated. Uh, it's very rare that a party alone can uh, sort of uh, gain an absolute major majority in the chamber. So sort of second round uh, elections, uh, local or, or national, it's always a story of, of coalition. And the best, place, uh, the best place parties on the left and right really will kind of invite the, 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 the smaller parties on, on their side of the political spectrum to support them. And in return, uh, those smaller parties will gain seats, you know, in 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 the, the in a sort of a cities which uh, where they will become the majority. That's the way it works, if you like. They are. It's a bit of a. It's an electoral transaction. So I think the whole story of the Greens is that is progressively over the past twenty years is that they, they have progressively, you know, uh, switched from a position of a minor party, i.e., the one which literally had to beg for seats, elected seats in, uh, in uh, municipalities to now the main party, which uh, was in a position to uh, literally uh, uh, sort of form the majority and invite other parties, which are now smaller. And I think, for instance, of the Socialist Party, yeah. uh, which is still uh, the sort of equivalent of Labour in the UK, Social Democratic Party, which since uh, its uh, crash and defeat of 2017 hasn't recovered from it yet. And it seems that as time passes by, it is going to be very difficult for for, the, for French socialism to, 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 to get back to that position of, of domination. Uh, we have similar situation in Europe, if you think of PASOK in Greece, if you think of a number of, of countries, you know, there are, there are parties which normally, which uh, find it very hard now to, to become again the main force. And I yeah. think that explains why the Greens are now making an electoral breakthrough and are becoming the main force. There's a bit of a void on the left. And it seems that the force, which could have become the dominant force, has uh, probably wasted its historic chance. And I think here of uh, France Insoumise of Mélenchon, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who was a presidential candidate in 2017, came fourth with 20% of the share of the vote, which is a very good result. But because subsequently wasn't able to uh, unite uh, left-wing forces, is now on the decline. And I think uh, Mélenchon, his party, France Insoumise, was clearly unable to compete in this yeah. election. So that explains why the Greens have mm. uh, sort of exploited the void on the left, the, so, the decline of the socialists, and the fact that France Insoumise uh, wasn't able to uh, unite the left. So, I mean, to me, the second story, which we already touched upon very briefly, is the sort of depressingly low turnout figures um, for the elections. Um, and that's, I think that's something that all the parties that didn't do so well, uh, which were uh, basically all parties, but, but the Greens seemingly um, are gonna use that um, in their discourse now to sort of half delegitimize the elections, not really delegitimize, but maybe try and tone down the, the meaningfulness 
of last night's result. But what would you say, is it completely down to COVID-19 fears? Or are there other strong factors that would suppress um, turnout for, for these elections? I know certainly last night, Jean-Luc Mélenchon um, uh, used that line of, of saying that people have been disenfranchised and that sort of argument. What, what, what do you think? What's the main factor? Well, uh, yes, I think you mentioned Mélenchon, but he wasn't the only one to say, well, this clearly uh, yes. that elections is about uh, the sort of the crisis of yeah. French democracy. And if by French democracy, of course, he referred to the fact that uh, French people uh, vote uh, less and less. And I think that that's really the point. They will all try, all the defeated parties will try to sort of explain that uh, whoever's won the election, I think this time around it's the Greens, uh, they clearly lack legitimacy and and, uh, and also one will need to see the Greens confirm that good result at the next election. I think the next big election is one which is all traditionally very hard for the Greens, which is the presidential election. Yeah. We shall see that. But anyway, yes, it's a historic result also for that reason is that the, uh, the turnout was extremely low. Uh, almost 60% of abstention, which is never heard of before, 20% yeah. uh, more than six years ago. Six years ago was the, the, the previous election. So a point about that, uh, the nature of the election, it's, it is traditionally a, a popular election. People like voting for their mayors because mm -hmm. unlike the UK where the election, you know, people hardly know uh, who is elected uh, locally. Uh, they, are, they aren't elected mayors uh, all over the place, but in some some cities only. In France, it's a, it's a well, uh, you know, it's really something very deeply anchored. You know, people relate to their mayors. They know who, who it is. You know, they, they, they know better the mayor than, than the MP, for instance. So it is really, uh, really striking that. So I think the explanation is, I think it's a combination of uh, sort of current circumstances i think i see two reasons here the first one is of course covid covid19 mm -hmm. uh, people uh, probably uh, thought twice before uh, going out to vote uh, because it's about taking risk uh, you know yeah. people didn't want to get infected although extreme measures were taken to be fair this time around but uh, if you think of what happened three and a half months ago, which was the, the first round was organized literally one day before uh, Macron yeah. decided on the national lockdown. And it, it was uh, shown afterward that um, during that first vote, a lot of people uh, got the virus because there were very few measures, you know, of uh, protect the, the people. So um, people got angry. People, a lot of people fell ill. Even some people died, you know, as a result of that. People working in a, in a polling station, being yeah. there all day long. So this time around, it is fair to say that uh, extreme measures were, were taken. So, but that should have played in favor of people uh, voting uh, more, but I think people were afraid. There's another reason, which is, as I said, first round took place three and a half months ago. Normally, uh, there's a maximum of, of a two-week uh, lag between uh, the, two, the, two, the two rounds. So hard to really get motivated about voting, you know, uh, when, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and people have probably other worries at the moment, you know, with, yeah. with COVID-19. So that's, that's one. But I think there are more structural reasons, which is a sort of long-term explanation, which is in France, 
people vote less and less. And I seem to be stating the obvious because that's probably <laughs> something happening across Europe and if not the Western world in general, that's a fact. But I think it is extremely acute in a French context. The reason, my opinion, and I think that's something uh, very, uh, uh, very French, is that as soon as a president, as soon as a government, as soon as a, an MP or a mayor uh, get elected, uh, it doesn't take long for uh, the elected officers to become extremely unpopular. Look at <laughs> the opinion polls uh, for Macron. I think he's uh, again, one of the most unpopular presidents of the Fifth Republic. And there's a long tradition of unpopular, very unpopular presidents. If you think, uh, going back to, to Mitterrand, then Chirac, then uh, Sarkozy, Hollande. Hollande, Hollande, couldn't, Hollande couldn't run again because of that. Because when he yeah. looked at opinion polls before the, 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 the last uh, election, he thought, well, no way I'm going to be elected with such uh, appalling opinion polls. So, but Macron managed to even have worse opinion polls. So there's a reason for that, which is I think the French people are less and less comfortable with uh, the current institutions. Let's call them the Fifth Republic, as you probably listeners what it is. You know, it's the it's a Charles de Gaulle's institutions uh, which he set up and uh, in 1958 following the, uh, the, the Algerian crisis. And those institutions which give tremendous power to the president at the expense of the parliament are seen today by a lot of French people as not functioning well, not democratic enough, uh, too much power in the hands of one person. And clearly that explains why, you know, uh, the French have a very, very pessimistic and a sort of negative take on French politics and, and the French political personnel in general. They don't like it. They have no patience with them. It's even worse than in a number of countries. And I think that's really uh, probably uh, the reasons, lack of democracy, lack of transparency. We have a president which is a very aloof figure. I think in France, the adjective normally associated with a president is that is a Republican monarch. So, which yeah. is really a bit of a, a, bit, a bit of a paradox, yeah. and anything to do with the monarchy, you know, the French uh, had a revolution, uh, is not positive. So, to call the president a Republican monarch is not a good thing. So, let's talk about um, the president. Um, as you say, he's had um, a lot of difficulties with a wide range of questions and sort of being attacked from um, from all sides. And then obviously now he's had to uh, had to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. And his remarkable rise in 2017, I must say, feels very um, far away. Um, so his party um, at last night's elections probably had the most disappointing showing. Was this inevitable, do you think? And their line of defense is that their new party, I think what they were repeating over and over again was even the Anglo-System Challenger Party. Um, is that just an excuse, in your opinion, or is there something to do with that um, in terms of them having a very weak ground game? 
Well, to argue, as of course Macron's party and party's official will will uh, argue, and have started doing so, uh, that because they're a new party, you know, which was uh, created hardly three years ago, uh, uh, of course the results are very much in line with uh, this novelty. Uh, I think it is true, but up to a point, uh, because uh, you could also argue that Macron's party uh, had was was running uh, major uh, cities. If you think, for instance, of Lyon, Lyon uh, yeah. was run by um, uh, Gérard Colomb, who used to be uh, the interior minister in in uh, Edouard Philippe's uh, government, so uh, under uh, Macron's presidency. And he lost it. You know, Lyon is the is a very wealthy bourgeois uh, conservative city, and it's now gone to the Greens, which is absolutely incredible. So, so I think really the 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 idea that because they're a new party, they couldn't met, they couldn't really win any major cities, I think is uh, can't be totally convincing because. Uh, there, there were lots of people uh, on the ground uh, uh, to to win those elections. The, the truth of the matter, if you look at the results in, in, in Paris, very bad, very disappointing. Yeah. Macron's candidate, Agnès Burzin, uh, came third with 15% of the share of the vote, wasn't even elected as a municipal councillor. So all that is very bad. And I think it shows one thing, it shows that Macron's party uh, which isn't a party in a traditional sense. In a sense, it's a party of supporters, good enough yeah. for Mac to get elected, to get proposed as a candidate for the presidential election and win. A bit out of the blue, I have to say, Macron exploited exactly the fragmentation and and decline of the two dominant forces in French politics, yeah. on the centre-left, the socialist, and on the centre-right, Les Républicains, to win. But now, having won, the big difficulty for Macron, and it's, it's, it's been his problem since elected, is that he doesn't have a real party to support him. You know? And that is evidence again, this election, that uh, La République En Marche doesn't have really any real existence on the ground. There are no activists, no party members on the ground. And I think this is probably a, a major setback because if you want to uh, be a dominant uh, political force, uh, and that's not simply for France, I think it's a general uh, political law, uh, you need the backing of a party, you need a party which, which, has, uh, which is firmly rooted locally and in, in regions, and that's what is missing at, at the moment uh, for, for, for Macron. So I think, yes, that if probably the big victors of that election are the Greens, the other parties not doing so well, although probably as a socialist and the Republican will claim uh, that didn't do so bad. I think the, the big, the big uh, loser of that election is Macron. It's a, it's a terrible, it's a terrible result for him. A couple of more points that stuck out. There's obviously this whole dynamic with Macron's prime minister, Edouard Philippe, who last night and was re-elected mayor. How is this whole discussion of, of his sort of attempted image building and potential maybe even power grab substantiated? Is, that, is it just um, gossip? Um, does that say anything about what you've just mentioned in terms of Macron's own standing in the movement? Well, the irony of, the, of, of yesterday's uh, a municipal election is that 
the major success of Macron, probably the only one of, of the night, is, uh, uh, is Edouard Philippe in, in his uh, town of Le Havre, and yeah. Edouard Philippe being the incumbent uh, prime minister. So that's really the, the major and only success. But I'm not sure that Macron rejoiced particularly, no. <laughs> because as probably any follower of French politics will know by now, I think the two men are, do not agree uh, very much on the sort of uh, what comes next, you know, for, for the government. So it has to do also with the, the structure of the, of, of the French executive, where you have two heads. You know, you have a president, which is directly elected by the people, and you have a prime minister forming the government, running, managing the government, but yeah. who is chosen, who is nominated, appointed by, by the president. And the president can at any time sack him if he wants to. We shall see, but I think uh, Macron can't go on like this as if nothing had happened. It's it's a serious uh, warning for him if he wants uh, to uh, compete in the next presidential election, which I'm sure he wants. He needs to do something. So reshuffle for sure is on the cards. Now also probably a change in in, in uh, of political direction is probably needed. You know, France yeah. has had before COVID-19, you know, a major social movement, if you think of the Yellow Vest. Yeah. And of course, he needs to address that and it's not gone. And I mean, he, I don't know if there's data on this yet, but it does seem like some of the potential voters for Macron and his party are the ones now also voting for the Greens, probably the more centre-left ones. And it seems like he's hearing that. I was just reading that he, just today he's pledged billions of more euros to tackle the climate crisis. So do you think he's going to try and pivot? I hate, hate to use that word, but is he going to try and move his rhetoric a bit more towards the centre and maybe even um, centre-left on some policies going forward? He has been at least perceived as being quite firmly centre-right. Yes, absolutely. And this is really what probably the, the, the big enigma about, about Macron. Where does he stand politically? I think sometimes if you read on the whole the, the British press, I have, I have the impression myself when I read the British press, yeah. that he's a young moderniser leaning to the centre-left for European. There's a bit of truth in that. But that's not the perception now of the majority of the French public, which is why it is problematic for him, where uh, I think on the whole, he is seen as leaning to the centre-right, as you say, and for, for even a fraction of the electorate, even further to the right than simply the, the centre-right, notably in his economic policy. So for all these reasons, it's very difficult. And, and in order to explain this enigma, I think one needs to get back to uh, Macron's success uh, in 2017. Macron's success was built on something which, which is very original in French politics. He was able to appeal to segments of uh, the old uh, socialist electorate, so centre-left, as well as segments of uh, the centre-right electorate, you know, people coming from Les Républicains and more centrist, more European parts of the right and that is something really unheard of in French politics you know that the, the sort of typical center normally doesn't exist and Macron really tried that was his attempt and 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 that explained also his success but in the long run it seems very difficult to sustain this kind of um, fiction of I'm neither left nor right but center because the facts are and the and the public's perception is 
that Macron is no longer on, on the center, certainly not on the left, and that has a political and electoral consequence, which is he's been losing since 2017 uh, the more center-left voters who came from the Socialist Party. And those voters, as you said, are now uh, voting for the Greens or going are going back to the Socialist Party. That's, that explains why his sort of more progressive wing is shrinking. And that is really a serious problem for him because part of his appeal was that he could it could be seen as 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 a sort of a president of a kind of a, a young uh, and less young electorate, urban, educated, uh, affluent, but also pro-European and quite progressive on, on on cultural and political matters. And I think it's losing that that appeal for people who are for the more liberal uh, segments of his electorate. So one final thing. I mean, something quite remarkable. If you think back to 2017. Uh, the reason why Macron got such an authoritative victory in the second round was the fact that he was running against Marine Le Pen. And we haven't yet discussed her party, which now is called Réassemblement National, RN. But I think for most people, it, it'll, we'll still think of it as Front National, even after the name change. And I mean, uh, when we track presidential polls, she still seems to have quite a consolidated base that's quite large. It seems like in these municipal elections, given the focus on lists and alliances, getting those high levels of support might be difficult for them. Or is there any other reasons for them not doing that well? I know they won their first sort of big-ish city last night. But what's the status of Assemblement National? I think it's, a, it's very interesting what happened yesterday for the Rassemblement Front National. I, I agree, it's, it's just a rebranding of the party yeah. name. I think the, the policy and, and personnel and ideology haven't uh, changed. I think what's the similarities with Macron are exactly there. This party, like Macron's party, are prototypes of party which are really sort of good at processing votes in presidential election where the personality of the leader matters very much you know Marine Le Pen, Macron that's also the reason why Mélenchon on the, on the populist left it so well you know you if you are charismatic good on in the media uh, you'll do well you don't need a big party you know it's really people choosing a figure, a, a personality, rather than sometimes policy. Whereas if you need, you know, to win uh, general elections, municipal elections, you need the members on the ground campaigning, you, you, need, you need elected officers on the ground in municipalities. And that is really the limitations of the Rassemblement National are there. It's that, you know, 40 years after really its first electoral breakthrough, the, the smart it still hasn't managed really to become a an acceptable appealing party for yeah. uh, for for the for the French electorate. And apart from winning a, a sort of biggish city in, in the southwest of France, Perpignan, there were lots of losses. Again, that shows it's a setback for for the Rassemblement National. Mm -hmm. So clearly, the sort of uh, 
the, the far right is, seems to be always touching a kind of uh, electoral glass ceiling. And also, frankly, COVID-19 hasn't been a good time for, uh, uh, for the far right and right-wing populists across Europe. And it shows again with that election. COVID-19, you need the experts. You need people who talk sense, who are calm. Uh, you don't need uh, agitators. You don't need, you know, all the uh, Salvini, Trump. So it's the same here. And again, local elections, that shows that this party, and uh, probably the conclusion can, which can be drawn is that all they're doing very well every five years at the presidential election, uh, still very being very far from winning that, that election, by the way, the party doesn't have the means to become a clearly dominant force in French politics, you know, because every time it matters, you know, to establish a kind of base locally or uh, regionally, it fails to do so. And again, last uh, yesterday, uh, the results uh, were, were not were not good for that party. Well, thank you. I think we've we've covered uh, most aspects of the elections that, that I can think of, um, at least, you know, 24 hours after the results. Um, and Absolutely. And when our listeners hear this, um, a lot might have happened since. But thank you so much. Kat. Thank you. Thank you for uh, for giving me the, the floor and asking me questions. I think your questions were very good because you, you indeed covered everything. And I think it was nice to do it after the election uh, because then you, you can reflect on uh, the results, the meaning of it. So yeah. uh, good, uh, good thing to do. Yeah, thank you. So before we wrap up uh, this week's episode, we of course have to keep up with our Who is Who European Commission edition segment. We're almost out of lovely commissioners to discuss, but we have a couple uh, more for you today. Can you tell us about who you picked out the hat this week, Ewan? I get to talk to you about our friend from Austria, Johannes Hahn. Hahn is the European Commissioner for Budget and Administration. He is a member of the Austrian People's Party, which belongs to the centre-right European People's Party in the European Parliament. Hahn has been a commissioner since 2010, serving previously as the Commissioner for Regional Policy between 2010 and 14, and as the Commissioner for European Neighbourhood Policy and Enlargement Negotiations following the 2014 elections. Hahn has been active within the Austrian People's Party since he was young, acting as the deputy leader of its youth wing in the 80s and standing out as a much more EU-friendly voice than most of his peers at the time. He went on to represent the party on the Vienna Regional Council and entered national politics in 2007 when he was appointed Minister of Science and Research. Hahn has a Doctor of Philosophy from the University of Vienna, but has been accused of plagiarising part of his thesis, a controversial moment in our Who's Who segment this week, with an expert group concluding that around 17% of his 254-page thesis were ripped from someone else, which is a pretty controversial statement. He's also acted as the CEO of a multinational gambling group before becoming a commissioner. Hans' responsibilities in the current commission are to improve the performance of the EU budgetary spending, developing a new human resources strategy, attract, develop and retain highly qualified staff to deliver on EU priorities and instilling a diverse and inclusive workplace. So funnily enough, the commissioner I'm speaking about this week is Maria Gabriel, 
I'm sure that's not how you pronounce it, but that's how I'm going to say it. And she is a Bulgarian politician. She's a commissioner for innovation, research, culture, education, and youth. All great stuff. As I said, uh, she represents Bulgaria and is a member of the GERB party which sits with the European People's Party in the EU Parliament. She began her career as an academic, studying topics such as decision-making processes in the EU, political sociology, and international relations. In 2009, she was elected in the EU Parliament, uh, where she quickly rose to the ranks of the EPP, acting as one of its vice presidents, as well as leading Bulgaria's delegation, while sitting, of course, in a wide range of committees. She joined the EU Commission in 2017, when Jean-Claude Juncker appointed her to be in charge of its digital portfolio. Uh, in 2019, Ursula von der Leyen instead opted to put her in charge of her current portfolio, which, as I said, innovation, research, culture, education, and youth. Her main tasks include developing the European research area in cooperation with all the member states, promoting excellence in networking among European universities, and ensuring full implementation of what's known as the New European Agenda for Culture, uh, as well as the Future Horizon Europe program. So you can say she's gone back to her professional roots working with education issues. Thank you for listening to the Europe Elects podcast. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review. And also to stay up to date with European politics, um, you sort of have to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. You can find us at europelex.eu and at europelex across all social media, except uh, Instagram, that is. There we're at europe underscore lex. Um, thank you so much again and see you next time. You've been listening to the Europelex podcast hosted by me, Ewan Healy and Gabriel Hedenbrook. The managing editor was Polychronis Karempolis. The producer and audio engineers were Raphael Peña-Rios and Leon Liesener. The script was written by our host and Matthew Nicholson. And the music was by Jose Alvarado. Thanks for that. I'll let you get back to your evening of sleep. <laughs>